Hello everyone, my name is Michael Torpy and recently I've found that a lot of the conversations I'm having with people in my life are about COVID-19, the coronavirus. Um, and these are conversations I'm having with people that I work with. And it's been a little bit of a change because ordinarily I've enjoyed speaking to my colleagues about everything but work. And obviously we haven't had a pandemic to talk about. Um, and I've found that there's a certain monotony when all you do talk about is the negatives in life and, and your focus is on uh, this pandemic that we're all living. And so to try and alleviate that, I've reflected on some of the people that I work with and what I miss about seeing them day to day. And, and what I miss is having those conversations about anything under the sun, talking about pop culture or, or talking about people's passions and their interests. So with that in mind, I've decided to invite some of my friends to come and join me on a podcast and to talk about the ABCs, anything but coronavirus. We're not going to talk about work. We're going to talk about people's passions. We're going to talk about the things that inspire people, the things that they've grown up with, the things that they miss, the things that they look forward to. And I'd like to really um, thank the people that are going to join me on this podcast and to share something of their lives with me. Well, I'm really pleased to, to be able to have a bit of a conversation with Bernie O'Keefe. And but anyone who knows Bernie knows that he's definitely a, a big animals man. He's something of a twitcher, um, a great interest in birds and also in, in reptiles and other wild creatures. And anyone who's spent any time with him has been able to see the, the great passion that he has for the natural world. Um, Bernie, welcome very much to the ABC Anything But Corona podcast. Thanks, Michael. Before we get going and um, and you share us a little bit of your story and, and tell us perhaps a little bit about your love for the natural world, uh, if you were to be an animal, what animal would you be? Oh, uh, yeah. If I had to be an animal, I would be a superb fairy wren. So tell us about the superb fairy wren. Well, you may have seen those. They're uh, a little uh, navy blue and black little Rennie type bird that you often find around Melbourne. Uh, what I really like about them is that uh, each male has a harem of six females. So uh, they've got a pretty good life, I think. <laughs> now, do they have a call, Bok? Yeah, yeah, they have a really high pitch, uh, tweaky noise. Uh, and they're really, uh, you can call them in. So, uh, you know, if I'm about and I come across a superb fairy wren, I, I can actually call them in and give them a twitch and they, and, and they do actually come right in. Which is not so let's see that one again. If you if you do it, I might have a bit of a go at it. Okay, okay. It's a... Okay, so I'll try. Yeah, that'll work. That'll work. <laughs> I'll do that and I'll be able to, uh, like the Pied Piper of Hamlin, have a... Uh, a group of superb fairy wrens following me around everywhere I go. Yeah, and uh, the thing is, there's so many great apps now with bird calls that you don't actually need to. We call that in the burning world, uh, uh, in the twitching world, uh, oh, I forget the term now, pitching and, uh, yeah, pitching. Uh, but we don't need to do that anymore because uh, we've got apps that can do all that sort of thing for you. But most birds respond to it. It's really cool. And what's your favourite call to do? Oh, without a doubt, my favourite call is the barking owl. Now, barking owls you mainly find in the northern part of Australia and uh, obviously at night. And it's fantastic to be out there, you know, the Northern Territory camp in the middle of nowhere. And then you hear a barking owl and you can actually call them down to your campsite. Do you want to hear what a barking owl sounds like? 
I think you know that I do. <laughs> it's a woof, 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 woof. And I can play the app to you now. It's identical. So you can sit around a fire and go woof, 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 and they will fly in and, and land on a tree above you. Barking owls, awesome. Woof, 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 woof. That'll work too. <laughs> Now I've got my wife and children outside the room while I'm recording this podcast and uh, anyone listening to the door just hearing me call out, woof, 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 woof. <laughs> I love what we're going on about. Um, Bok, anyone, uh, anyone that knows you knows that you've got a great passion for animals and um, I think it's really important that we do have this connection to the natural world. Uh, so where does that come from for you? Uh, look, when I, uh, as I was growing up, I just had an amazing love for the natural world. And uh, in those days, you didn't need to have licenses for birds and reptiles. And I just had a menagerie of pets at, at home. You know, I used to go out all the time. We lived not that far in Geelong, out, out from the country, and we could actually go out and catch a lot of these things. And probably one of my best stories is that when I was eight, I caught a uh, little baby tiger snake and uh, I kept it in a jar. Uh, under my bed. And then I thought I'll be really smart about this. I'll take it to school for show and tell. So I did that. And then during the day, my mum got a phone call from school and uh, I got in all sorts of trouble. So, uh, yeah, and, and I, as I said, I just used to collect lizards, birds, tortoises, snakes, uh, sugar gliders, anything I could get my hands on. And uh, and as a kid, I used to just study uh, the, the field guides so much just kept on studying 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 and circling things and thinking that's what i'd love to see one day and now i've had the opportunity to see uh well almost every bird in australia which is great but two or three to go uh but frogs mammals reptiles uh it's just very fortunate i've had this chance to uh get out and see these these creatures so did it just happen for you or was there someone in your life that sort of led you down that path and introduced you to it <clears throat> my older brother uh, had a similar sort of passion, uh, but he was a lot older than me. And so when I sort of could really understand what he was doing, he started chasing other birds. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so no, it was, it, it's, it's interesting. Uh, none, of, none of my kids are really into it, but my grandkids just love animals. So that gene may have been passed, uh, may have skipped a generation and gone down to the grandkids. Oh, fantastic. Now, you mentioned the tiger snake before and... Uh... I recall that there was another story that you shared with us at the start of this year involving a snake and a, a campfire. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> that was actually last September, uh, during September holidays, where I, uh, I took a week of long service leave and I was able to drive up to Mount Isa. And then I drove up to Darwin to catch up with a friend. Uh, we ended up staying in a... Uh, in a place in Darwin and they had these beautiful gardens around there. And uh, I thought that night, just before I went to bed, I thought this is probably a really good place for a slaty gray snake. So I went looking and I was turning over palm leaves in this backyard and here's a slaty gray, slaty gray snake. Now a slaty gray snake, completely harmless, completely harmless. I thought, oh, fantastic. So I grabbed it and took it out. And there were other people staying in, in this sort of uh, accommodation, sort of like a backpackers. Uh, they're coming out and going, oh, this guy's caught a snake. This guy's caught a snake. So I started showing all the people this, this slaty gray snake. And I put it down and I was taking photos of it. Oh, it was just so cool. It was trying to bite me, but I was probably quick enough to get away from it. I was quick enough. 
Anyway, I was so thrilled about it. Always want to see a slutty great. So anyway, I went back to my room, downloaded my photos, put them on Facebook. So I put a lot of my stuff on, on Facebook. Uh, basically all my stuff I put on Facebook when it comes to photographs. And one of my great mates, Scott Iper, who's probably Australia's leading snake expert, uh, rang me immediately and said, uh, Bob, it ain't a slaty grey. It's a northern small line snake. Extremely, extremely venomous. <laughs> <laughs> I dodged a big bullet there. So next time I go to... Uh, uh, the NT, I've got to make sure my ID's right. It's quite funny. Next night, I actually was in Kakadu and came across a, uh, a children's python. It's fantastic. Got it out of the car, had it around my head at one point. Lovely. Took photos of it, sent them in a couple of days later. Scott rang me again and said, Was it a children's python? It was a brown tree snake, highly, highly venomous. <laughs> <laughs> he said, Bob, do me a favour, stop catching snakes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was interesting. But you're here now to tell the story. Yeah, yeah. I've got a pretty good rapport with uh, snakes. I, I haven't really had much drama with them. Uh, I must tell you a very, really quick story, really funny. Uh, when I was in year eight, I had a teacher who used to give me a really hard time. This is at St. Joseph's Catholic College in Geelong. Really hard time. And I felt he was picking on me. So I thought I'd get him back. So one weekend I caught a snake and I took it into school, tiger snake, and I put it in his front drawer and you know teachers in those days had a, a, a permanent desk yeah. uh, and I put it in his drawer and uh, so he went to open up the drawer to get get the chalk and his tiger snake so I jumped out of the chair and come to the rescue and caught this tiger snake and he loved me he thought I was the hero <laughs> and I was actually the villain <laughs> you better um, better be careful you don't want to give people uh, ideas um, <laughs> yeah don't upset me at school <laughs> So, Bernie, what's your what's your go-to? What's your best story? Your best moment that you've had in the uh, in the animal kingdom? Oh, gee, look, it's just so many, Michael. Uh, yeah, you know, going to Cocos Killian Island about four years ago, which is Australian territory in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and swimming with sharks is fantastic. Uh, the pelagics I do off the southern coast of Tasmania, uh, going to the Torres Strait Islands is fantastic. Uh, there's just so, so many. I guess one story comes to mind. Uh, I was doing a pelagic off Port Stephens. Now, Port Stephens is probably a couple of hours north of Newcastle. And it was quite warm. The weather was quite warm. And when you do a pelagic, you hop on a boat and you travel out to the continental shelf, which could be 40, 50 kilometres. Mm. And the idea is you put burley in, and that's fish and blood into the water and that attracts the birds. And it's also a really good chance to see things like sharks and whales and things like that. And this, uh, this I reckon it was only my second second pelagic and there's this three metre bronze whaler swimming around the boat. It's just beautiful, amazing bronze whaler. Now they are man eaters, but not as bad as great whites. Anyway, I thought, I'm going to go for a swim with this. I just want to have a swim and sorry, see if I can grab its dorsal fin and have a little swim with it. Yeah, as so you do. Hey? As you do, just jump as in the water. As you do. I just had this, yeah, I started yeah. stripping off. I started stripping off. I was going to get down to my jocks and the captain said, what do you think you're doing? I said, I'm jumping in the water to have a swim with that shark. He said, no, you're not. I'm in charge here. You're not going in that water. 
I said, Roll, that's the last time I'll go in your park. <laughs> I've been back about six or seven times since. So it was probably a good idea. I just got a little bit overexcited. So snakes, sharks, I've seen you in meetings pick up cockroaches. Is there anything, is there any animal you, you won't touch, anything you don't want to go near or or you don't have an affection for? Uh, not really. I, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, sus on spiders. Mm. Uh, I see a lot of scorpions. I don't mind them so much. But I, I think there's a little bit of arachnophobia in me because uh, spiders still give me the, the creeps. Yeah, I can't say I've been bitten seriously. Oh, the other thing I don't like, which I see a lot of, is centipedes. They, uh, God, they're a scary thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not really into the insects anyway. I'm more the tetrapods, the mammals, uh, the reptiles, the frogs, and the birds. Tiger shakes, no tiger snakes, no worries. No, Jumping no, in the water no. with, uh, with sharks, no worries, but a centipede? Yeah, yeah no. Oh, thank you. They're all um, So I guess before we let you go, Bernie, and thanks for sharing a bit of your story with us, why is it important? What's your message to people listening about the importance of having this connection to um, to animals and to the great outdoors? Yeah, look, well, to me, uh, it, it's a huge part of my life. Uh, I guess it's my drug. I don't know what feeling is like on drugs, but I get the idea. It's this adrenaline rush that you get, and I get that through uh, going out and spending time in the natural world and just the sounds, the smells, the people you meet, the places you go to, it just gives me so much satisfaction. And uh, it, 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 it's an incredible lifestyle. And uh, yeah, it, it's a lifestyle that I've fell in love with. It. And I think it's really fulfilled me as a person too. I think it's helped define me as a person. Uh, it gives me a great deal of satisfaction. And I love sharing my stories with people. I, I do a lot of conferences, particularly around Melbourne. Uh, two or three times a year. And I love sharing the stories and I get really good feedback about those. And I have a num number of photos in magazines and books, which also is really pleasing. And a couple of really popular uh, Facebook sites for birds, which has uh, some pretty big memberships. So all of that uh, just gives me an incredible amount of satisfaction. Well, you love uh, sharing your stories and we certainly love hearing them. So thanks for sharing a few with us today. Oh, my pleasure, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Ben. Okay. Well, my guest now is someone that's inspired my love of podcasts because when I'm out walking the dog, I actually, actually often listen to a podcast called The Rewatchables uh, where they'll talk about classic films from the last 10 or 15 years or even a little bit further back. Um, and oftentimes before I, I listen to that podcast, I'll check my emails and Lisa Dillon will have sent me an email saying uh, they're talking about Stand By Me or they're talking about something else now. So um, I'll be inspired to go and have a listen to that one. Um, Lisa's got a great love of films and I really enjoy speaking about movies with her. It's a great distraction from uh, other things happening in life. So really pleased to welcome Lisa Dillon to the podcast. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for uh, asking me to be on this. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Now, Lisa, before we start going, um, I understand that you've brought a few films in to talk about with us today, but uh, I have to ask, um, in the movie of your life, who plays Lisa Dillon? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, my kids think it should be Meryl Streep, but the Miranda Priestley Meryl Streep from Devil Wears Prada. Um, <laughs> I can see that. 
I would I would love if she was still alive, Vivian Lee. Um, but given that I actually don't, I, I, I'd rather watch films than be in a film. And uh, as a lot of people know, I loathe having my photograph taken. I actually find it difficult to sort of think about who would play me. Um, but in terms of great actresses, uh, I'd probably have to say Vivian Lee or, you know, she's, she'd be my, my, my pick. Fantastic. A um, couple of quick questions, Lisa. Favourite actor, male? Okay, favourite actor. Look, that's really tough. There's the actor who I think is one of the greatest actors I've ever seen, and that would be Daniel Day-Lewis with Philip Seymour Hoffman as a very, very close second. But um, I have a huge, huge soft spot for Cary Grant, who uh, is an old, old actor, um, sadly passed now, of course, but I grew up watching Cary Grant movies and I just don't think you can beat him for suaveness and elegance and charm. Uh, perhaps a little bit before my time, but certainly I'll take your word for it. And, uh, and before my time too, I would oh, like of course, to add. Of course. Um, Favourite uh, actor female? Ah. Uh, Favorite. Have you picked your favourite actress to play yourself? No, look, I, I haven't. I haven't really. Um, look, there are so, so many really good ones. I think uh, the Australian actress Judy Davis is quite remarkable, um, as is the Australian actress Essie Davis. Uh, I mean, Meryl Streep's fantastic. Emily Blunt is um, another really, really good, good actress. And then there are some who are, are not quite as well, well known. So at the moment, I'm really enjoying seeing a woman called Merritt Weaver in just about anything. She's, she's just quite incredible. And, um, and so is Toni Collette. So I seem to like a lot of Australian actresses, but, you know, I think, I think she's pretty remarkable as well. And doing great things too. Doing amazing things. So, Lisa, I've asked you to come in with uh, with a couple of films to talk to us about. Now, I haven't given too many restrictions about a uh, favourite film or a film that inspires you or a film that makes you cry or, or a film based on a certain thing. I've just left it at nice and open. I've said to you, Lisa, what are three films that you can talk about? So yeah. what was your, your process in selecting three films? Look, that was that. It was really, really tough, and I started with why I love film in the first in the first place, and what got me into watching so many films. And that was really my mother, and just growing up, and you know, watching um, movies with her on the weekend as a child, because she was a teenager in the fifties. And um, if you don't know what Australia was like in the 50s, which obviously I don't, and neither would you, um, movie going was really what teenagers did and it wasn't expensive and you could go and see, uh, well, when you went to the movies, you would see a couple of, of different movies. And then, you know, when you know, we were growing up, we had a TV in, in the house, black and white, I would add, um, I do remember our first colour television in 1975. Um, so, we, yeah, we would just watch all of these movies and they were mostly from the golden age of Hollywood. And so that's really where my 
my first love is, you know, this golden age of Hollywood. So I'm not going to be talking to you about sort of obscure Fellini films or obscure Truffaut uh, films. They, they are ones that are probably quite um, well known. But whilst all that was going on um, and watching all those old films, I really, really fell in love with a particular genre and that genre is film noir. Uh, I, I can tell you why I like um, film noir, but not necessarily what led to that attraction. So if you don't know anything about film noir, it's a, a particular period from, I think it's around the sort of 1940, 1941, right up until sort of the, the middle of the, of the 50s. So it's sort of a post, post-war um, film uh, movement. And it's sort of characterised by these um, femme fatale characters so femme fatale means dangerous um, woman and you know they're really sort of classy and elegant and they're black and white films they they use something called chiaroscuro lighting and um, that's that's often achieved by using things like vertical blinds and then allowing shadows um, to to come through those blinds and you know there'd be jazz music and um uh, monologues and those sorts of things so just quickly i'm going to lump this into like one film double indemnity in 1944 with barbara stanwick and fred mcmurray just a classic classic film noir probably the best um scripted and directed by billy wilder who'd be one of my favorite um directors Another one is Laura, 1944, uh, an Otto Preminger-directed film. I can highly recommend that one. And then one that people may have seen is one called Gilda, um, the 1946 uh, film with the amazingly beautiful Rita Hayworth, which um, if, if you don't know those films or that actress, if you've seen Shawshank Redemption, which a lot of people have, um, everyone knows Rita Hayworth because, of course, it's the Rita Hayworth poster in um, Andy's cell that allows him to uh, to escape. Another reference to... And just Gilda, jumping in there, Lisa, yeah, the, uh, the Stephen King book that uh, Shawshank's based on is actually called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. That's, yeah, that's right. So so in that that film, um, she there's this amazing scene where she sort of um, flips her head um, back and she tosses all this sort of glorious, glorious hair. Uh, another little reference to Gilda is in another one of my favourite films, probably my favourite rom-com, um, Notting Hill, with Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. And she has that line in um, in that film where she says that, you know, um, Rita Hayworth, with all her, her different relationships, you know, the the men she would go out with would um, would think they were going out with Gilda and not and not just Rita Hayworth. I'm paraphrasing there because I realise it's probably also a PG audience. So, where do you sit on Hugh Grant? Uh, I love him. I think he's completely one dimensional. I think he's all he always plays Hugh Grant. You know what you're going to get, and um, yeah. Well, what, well, what's not to love about that hair? He has that self uh, self deprecating uh, kind of bumbling way of, of, of talking, and uh, yes, I think um, as as uh, David Partridge once said, uh, "I'm an idiot." And uh, <laughs> but uh, well, what what can one do? Uh, yeah, no, he's 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 great as long as you don't expect too much from him, and you just want that that quintessential Hugh Grantness. It's fine. 
So well, yeah, I, think, I think Four Weddings and a Funeral is probably um, up there as one of my favourite uh, yeah. it, comedies as well. It's it is a good one. I, I do. I love that. I love the scene with the brother and the um, the the sign language. It's terrific. So can that count as sort of one film? Those those three. Have you tricked me? Are you, when I've asked you for three films, have you found a way of bringing in nine? Uh, s- sort of, because from Double Indemnity I, and Film Noir, I could then go on to talk about Blade Runner, which you might have expected I would talk about, but I'm not going to, even though that is one of my favourite films, because I love oh. the Film Noir elements. Well, and I could tell you something shocking about Blade Runner. Don't tell me you haven't seen it. Oh, well, okay, I won't. Okay, yeah, please, please don't. Look, do yourself a favour, make sure you see it. Make sure you see the 1997 um, director's cut uh, or even the, and I might have my dates wrong, I think there was a a digitally remastered 2007 um, director's cut of that. But, yeah, it's fantastic. Well, I'll put that on my list. And and I think you're going to talk about another film that until relatively recently I hadn't seen either. Um, Are you talking about 1991 Silence of the Lambs? I am, and it's a film that everyone told me that it's the most scary film that you'll ever see, and I think perhaps because I had that uh, anticipation and had it built up so much that when I came to watch it, um, it it didn't do it for me in that way. The book did. So you've read the book. Tell us about why you've picked Silence of the Lambs, Lisa. Okay, so Silence of the Lambs, that's 1991. So, of course, uh, I saw it at the cinema, whereas I know that for a lot of people, probably like yourself, you might have seen it when it came out on video or when it was on television. But um, back in the 90s, in Australia, we would have to wait a long time for new releases unlike today where we tend to get releases from um, particularly America a lot sooner than we used to. So there was a, a lot of talk about Silence of the of the Lambs and how sort of shocking it was. And um, it's hard to describe to people who, you know, weren't part of that kind of conversation at the time what it was like, the hype around um, Silence of the, of the Lambs. I kind of imagine that that's what it must have been like in the 60s when people were, were going to see um, Hitchcock's Psycho and, and coming out and telling people to, to go and see it. But, you look, I, I went and saw it and I, I was just blown away with it. Um, because because of a, a few things is a, a lot of the the filmmaking that we probably take for granted and see all the time now but was quite unusual at the time so um for example the the director jonathan demi who has recently uh, passed away actually he used a lot of uh close-ups of you know the protagonist and antagonist and almost the effect that they were looking straight straight at you and it just wasn't done then and and even things like at the uh the toward the end of the film the use of the night vision goggles i mean that was just absolutely um amazing we've sort of never seen night vision goggles but i think more than anything else you know to to, today we live in an era where there's five different versions of um CSI, there's Mindhunter. We're, we're really familiar with kind of the behavioural sciences and the the, um, the profiling aspect of um, p- 
police work, whereas that was sort of really new on the screen, I think, um, in 1991. And then on top of all of that, you've got this fantastic female character. And I love the fact that she was like the rookie FBI agent, you know, and um, I saw this when I was a rookie teacher as well. So I kind of, I don't know, I think I um, understood that new to the, the profession uh, feeling. And, you know, here she was, she, she's a, a character who gets into trouble in that film, but she sort of also gets herself out of, out of trouble. And I really like that aspect of her character. But I think more than anything else, it was one of the first sort of thriller films where, you know, you had, you basically had two antagonists. You had two serial killers. So mm. you've got the Anthony Hopkins, Hannibal Lecter character, but you've also got the Ted Levine, um, James Gum character. And it's sort of that the screenplay kind of messed with the typical story and it was just incredible. And, you know, that, that film, it just had everything, fantastic screenplay, great acting, the filming was wonderful. And it's one of only uh, three films that have won that what they call the big five with the Oscars. So it won best film director, screenplay, actress and actor. And the, the, the amazing thing, of course, is that Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor when um, I believe he's only on screen for about 25 minutes. And it, it's also hard to get people to kind of realise how amazing his performance was because it's now been parodied so many times. And, you know, that mask that he wears. It was so iconic, hasn't it? And, unbelievable. And he- him winning the Oscar for such a short amount of time. Um, I believe Whoopi Goldberg in, in Ghost won Best Supporting um, Actor for uh, a similar sort of thing. She came in very late in the film. And, yeah. And away. So it's yeah. these powerful sort of short bursts that can be more impactful sometimes than, yeah. than the film. So oh, much when you're talking about uh, Silence of the Lambs. I was reminded about another film probably about 10 years later, um, which is the Blair Witch Project, which hasn't stood up as well as a film and, and certainly doesn't have the same sort of uh, reputation now. But there was just that buzz about it. It was it was the the dawning of the internet and of people mm. using chat rooms and that sort mm. of thing. And, um, like you said with Silence of the Lambs, it was a film that was shot in a different way and, and um, uh, presented to the audience in a different way and was groundbreaking. Mm. I think perhaps we're a bit cookie cutter now and we don't see that as much. So I guess the great films are the ones that, uh, do something different and, and can inspire people or change people en masse. Yeah. Oh, look, absolutely. And I, I, I've seen Science of the Lambs again recently and it it's just not dated. You know, it looks like it was made yes, yesterday. You know, obviously, you know, take out, you know, fashion and cars mm. and what have you. But, it yeah, it, it, could, be, it could be made now. Yeah. Did you have a nice Chianti while you watched it? Always. We've got about two minutes left, Lisa. So have you saved the last or or should we? I I may have to cut out two films. I've got two more. Give us your top one. one. I'll go with one more. I'll go with an entirely, I'll go the change of direction from um, horror thriller to actually this is a tough one because I think it's characterised as a romantic 
uh, comedy, but it's it's really not a romantic comedy at all, I don't think. And it's uh, the 2006 Devil Wears Prada. So I mentioned Meryl Streep before, and I I love this film because of you know a whole host of of different reasons, but it is the one film that my family will watch with me that they would consider it to be a you know a chick flick mm. so in our house you know I'm, i'll happily watch die hard and star wars and all the rest of it with my two sons but it's usually difficult to get them to watch something that's you know stereotypically a you know a, 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 a woman's picture haven't seen the notebook <gasps> shocking yep. Yep, haven't seen the notebook, but anyway, they will watch the Devil Wears Prada um, with me. But I, I love it. You know that ninety-five percent of the time, when you read a book and then you watch the film version, you, you know, you say it's just not a patch on the book. The book is so much better. Yes. The complete reverse with Devil Wears Prada. I hated the book. I thought it was just a, a, a whinge fest um, from the writer. But the, the film was something else. And what I love about the film, I love it when a film surprises you, as we've already discussed with Science mm -hmm. of the Lambs, the way, you know, we were all sh so shocked by this idea of the two serial killers and, you know, and, and finding ourselves thinking that Hannibal Lecter was actually kind of not okay, but you sort of almost wanted him to get away at the end of the film. Well, mm -hmm. The Devil Wears Prada is the same. You know, Miranda Priestley, the Meryl Streep character, is ostensibly the antagonist, but she's actually the one everyone wants to be. She's she's so much more, um, you know, fascinating. And and for me, I, it combines two two things. That film, obviously, the fashion. I'm I'm going to be in on a film like that. You know, the the coat montage alone, it's worth watching for that. But oh um, yeah, absolutely, and and I do. Yeah, as as do my sons. Funnily enough, um, so you've you've got you've got the fashion, but it's actually got an an age old narrative in it. That film, which is this making a bargain with the devil, mm. and you know the uh, Mephistophelian sort of figure of of Miranda um, and yeah I just I love it I, I love watching it and getting annoyed at um, Anne Hathaway's uh, boyfriend and her friends I think they're they're awful um, and the whole time I'm on the side of um, Miranda and Emily Blunt's character and that was Emily Blunt's first role and she she practically steals the the film Lisa, I, I really want uh, this little podcast to be something of a success and I want people to enjoy listening to it and, and take something from it. Do you think if we use words like Mephistophelian? Mephistophelian. Say it again one more time. Mephistophelian. And what is that? From Mephistopheles. Oh, of course, of course, now that you say it like that. I Yes, yes, I get it now. Thank you. Uh, Lisa, very Mephistophelian of you, indeed. Just, just, just my attempt to um, intellectualise a film that we really all just want to watch for the um, the outfits. <laughs> well, you do it well, Lisa. You uh, you manage to find the uh, intellectual points from uh, pop culture, and you manage to um, always find something a little bit different or unusual to talk about. And, and I really enjoyed my conversations with you about film, um, and uh, certainly the fact that it, it spreads. Uh, across the genres and across the years as well. 
And you mentioned to me uh, the importance of, of watching those films with your mother. And, and as you were saying that, I was thinking about uh, probably when I was um, 10 or 11 going for a drive to Wangaratta to watch, at, uh, which was our local cinema or our closest mm-hmm. cinema about an hour away, um, to watch films like uh, Mr. Holland's Opus, um, Richard Dreyfus film, and, and just uh, to see on the screen um, something that, is so far away from our own lives, but we can still manage to find some connections in there. And I think that's the great thing about film. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the great thing about film as opposed to, you know, I know you can read a book and you can tell a person about a book. You can have chats about reading the same book afterwards, but um, film is special because you can experience it at the same time with somebody else, you know, right beside you as you're watching it. It's, yeah, it's absolutely the, um, yeah, it's, how to describe it. it's Mephistophelian, isn't it, Lisa? It's uh, in its purest form. So, thank you so much for coming in, Lisa, and, and having a chat about some films. And hopefully, we can do it again soon. I would love to. Take care. We're joined now by a man of great learning, uh, a man with a great affection for history and for politics, um, and certainly someone who's always first at the table to do the daily quiz and can tell you with no hesitation who was Prime Minister in 1922 um, and who played the role of Macbeth in Kenneth Branagh's first version of the same. Uh, Very great pleasure to welcome uh, John Dakin to the podcast. Oh, thanks very much, Michael. Thanks very much. And uh, yes, I I think I do know a store of uh, what many people might just say useless information. (laughs) (laughs) Trivia. Um, (laughs) <laughs> John, we're, we're talking history today. Uh, yep. If I was to ask you which historical figure is most like yourself? Ooh, ooh, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. Um, I probably would... There's ones that I would like to be like, you know, that I look up to and admire. Um, but I'm not sure whether I'm really approaching their their status, though. I do think I'm fairly tenacious. So maybe the guy that I'm going to talk about, I bear some resemblance to, but gee, that's maybe that's really boosting myself up a bit too much. Oh, I think it's more than appropriate that we boost ourselves up and that we talk very highly about ourselves uh, whenever we have the chance to do so. So well, I, I, to boost away. I don't think I'm going to be remembered in the same way that this guy that I want to talk about today. And he's, he's not even, I suppose, my historical hero would be someone like... Um, King Richard III, um, and I can bore people to death for hours talking about uh, the life of King Richard III, but he's not the one I want to talk about today. Well, um, perhaps I'll just let you get it into it, John, because I understand you've come to us with a bit of a, a story, and I know from our communication through the week that uh, you're a bit torn uh, from what to talk about because most of the, the stories from history seem to have some kind of macabre or, or dark edge. Um well, they, something that fascinates they, us, perhaps. They, they do. They do. And uh, I suppose the the thing about history, I've, I've been into history since I was a little boy, so probably from the age of six, seven, um, maybe even before that, But and then really got into, I suppose, English history and medieval history from about the age of eight or nine. And, um, yeah, there was uh, the story of Richard III's long fascinated me, but if I think of us to talk about that, there's a lot of negatives because that's a, that's a guy who's been really misrepresented in history. But the one, the one I thought about um, to share with you today 
is the story of this goes back far further in time. And this is a guy that um, uh, in some sections is still revered, but I think the story deserves to be retold. And that's, um, that's Alfred the Great. So I'm not sure how much you know or anyone knows about Alfred the Great. Have you heard about him, uh, Torps? Uh, uh, the word Viking pops into my head for some reason, but I'm not sure if I'm way off there. It should. Okay, well, I'll, I'll kick off, right? So first off, it's it, the, first, the first bit about Alfred the Great. He's sometimes known as King Alfred the Great of England, but that's actually not correct. He was king of the Kingdom of Wessex. So to set the scene... This guy lived in the ninth century. So he was born 849, died 899. And at that time, England was a bit of a piecemeal collection of different kingdoms. And that had been the case for the past couple of hundred years. The, uh, the Saxons and the Angles had come across from Germany and they had established different kingdoms in what we now know as England. Uh, and in the process, they displaced the original inhabitants, the British. So these kingdoms are long established by the time Alfred is born. And then we get another big threat. And that's what you mentioned with the Vikings. So the Vikings coming across from Denmark or modern day Norway, they start to attack the Eastern coast of England. And these guys are vicious. I mean, they're killing people. They're, they're taking gold and silver. They're destroying churches and monasteries, um, burning whole villages, etc. And there, this happens from about the year 793 onwards. So when Alfred is born and he's the fourth son of the king uh, of Wessex, uh, which is the kingdom of the, the West Saxons in what we now know as West England, when he's born, these Viking raids have been happening, happening intermittently for decades and they don't let up. So by the time he's about 16, the Vikings uh, in the year 865, the Vikings then set up what we now know as the Great Northern Army. And rather than just simply sacking a few villages or monasteries and then going back to Denmark or Norway, this time they actually stay. So they attack Northumbria, which used to be the preeminent English kingdom uh, up near the north northern border of Scotland. They attack it, but they don't go back home. They stay there. And within two years, they have taken over and destroyed the kingdom of Northumbria. And then they start to map. Yep. You want to what start? happened? Why did they stay this time? Does the historical record show that? I think, I think basically the attractiveness of the land. So if you think about where they've come from, particularly parts of Norway, but Denmark is, Denmark's quite small, but parts of Norway, the, the climate's so bad, it's so harsh, that I think a lot of them saw that, you know, this land is fairly fertile. So let's, let's stay there and carve out... Uh, uh, a new place for ourselves. Let's just take it over and displace the inhabitants. And so I think the attraction was there for them. And they got used to this cycle of going back and forth and sacking it and raiding it and ravaging the land as well. Now, the Vikings did this in other areas too. They they attacked the uh, northern part of France, which then became known as, known as Normandy. They even got around the Mediterranean and then got into uh, Ukraine too. Uh, inhabit to what we now know as Russia. So they were, they were great travellers. So it, in the case here, to go back to the story, within two years of them setting up the Great Northern Army, they had completely destroyed and taken over Northumbria. And then they set up a Northumbrian king who was a Viking. The other guy had been, had been murdered. 
And then they start to move further south. So you've got the kingdom to the east, which was East Anglia, uh, the Christian king of north of <clears throat> East Anglia. He was murdered quite viciously. He they demanded that he renounce his Christian faith. He refused to do that. So they just filled him full of arrows. And that guy became a, a saint, Saint Edmund. So East Anglia was taken over here. The Middle Kingdom, Mercia, which had been the most um, powerful kingdom, that was also taken over as well. Now, Alfred at this point is about a, a boy of 16, 17, 18 years old. So he then, with his brother, his elder brother was um, King Ethelred, uh, who was king at this, the other two brothers had died. And Alfred, with his uh, older brother, then starts to fight the, uh, uh, the Vikings uh, in Mercia. And what's, what's, what seems to have been the case was that their resistance was enough to at least buy a few years of peace. So even at a young age, here's a guy who was, um, seems to have been quite militarily skilled. Um, so that's an important little point. Then a couple of years later, 871. Now just remember, he's only 22 at this point. His brother dies. I think his brother dies of wounds, um, which he would have received in a battle with the Vikings, because it's war again. So Alfred again engages with war with the Vikings. This time, this time they've taken over Mercia. So the only kingdom that the uh, Saxons have got in the whole of England is Wessex. That's the only kingdom that's standing against the Vikings, which have taken over everything else. So Alfred is now the leader of this kingdom that's standing against the Vikings. And he fights them to a bit of a standstill. He buys a few years of peace. So things are sort of... Um, a little bit okay. And, and, and this is important to remember because I think had there been no Alfred, the whole of England would have been taken over by the Vikings. And then we've got a very different, you know, history turns on these sort of things. So maybe instead of England being the Christian country that it, it was and then stayed, uh, these Vikings are pagans. So who knows what would have happened after that. Um, <clears throat> anyway, within a couple of years, we get war again. So this happens from 876. Uh, he fights them again, uh, fights them to a bit of a standstill. But then in 878, things really, really turn and they turn badly. And the Vikings this time take over most of Wessex, including the capital Winchester. Um, and Alfred has to abandon that. Now I've read a couple of biographies on Alfred and one of the historians I read puts together a very convincing argument that what happened in the middle of 878 was Alfred actually was forced to abdicate, that his key nobles had lost confidence in him. Um, and why was that? Well, they thought they couldn't win. Right. I think when, when you, and this is often, we, we saw this in, with World War II, the approach to World War II. So sometimes when there's imminent war, um, key people might think, well, maybe it's better not to fight. Maybe what we're better to do is make peace with the enemy and just see if we can coexist. So that in what we what we termed that in the approach to World War Two was um, uh, like defeatism or um, what what was the word for chain? Just Chamberlain was uh, accused of this, just being accommodating towards the enemy rather mm. than trying to confront them directly. Now that seems to have been the case with some of the Wessex nobles. So remember now at this point most of Wessex is under Viking control. Alfred didn't. So Alfred, um, and he's got a young family at this point. He's got a wife. 
Uh, he's got a young daughter, a young son, uh, and there's a few others that stick by him as well. What he did was he retreated to the marshes of Somerset. So very uh, inaccessible area, uh, easier to hide, difficult to sort of penetrate. Mm. And at that point, and this is what I think is most inspiring, because at that point, other people would have simply given up. The odds are too much. The, these Vikings by then had a, they had a fearsome reputation and a, a sort of a reputation that they can't be defeated, um, that no one could stand up to them ultimately. Alfred and, and Wessex had given it a go for a couple of years, a dozen or so years. Even his grandfather had won great battles against them, but now it's looking really, really grim. Mm. Um, and he's hiding alone in the marshes of Somerset. And I'm sure there would have been people saying to him, just give up or go to Francia, which was the name for modern day France, you know, just retreat somewhere else. He doesn't do that. And one of the legends, which I'm pretty sure is a um, legend, I'm not sure whether it's true, but you might've heard of the legend of Alfred burning the cakes, right? It's an old, uh, have you Alfred, heard of it? Uh, No, I haven't. You have to tell me that one. Okay. It's an old legend that while Alfred was uh, hiding in Somerset, he was hiding with a peasant family mm. and they gave him the job of actually looking after the cakes, these bread cakes, which were baking in an oven. And he didn't pay attention to them and they got burnt. Right. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure this is just a legend, but what I think is interesting is the, the message behind, behind that was the bread is probably symbolic of Wessex as a kingdom. Mm. And maybe the suggestion is that he wasn't paying enough care of the kingdom itself. Uh, to get to this point where the Vikings could in, could invade, so I'm sure it's a legend that's been created after the event. Anyway, I've, I've heard a similar one, John. Now, was it um, was it one of the Richards on uh, Richard the Lionheart, perhaps in one of the Crusades? Oh yeah, um, yeah when he was kept when he was, in prison. Yeah, and uh, and similarly was about to give up and saw the spider. Um, oh, that's Robert spider. the Bruce. Ah, right. Yes, yeah, yeah, so Robert the Bruce of Scotland. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. that's. Uh, did I say uh, Robert the Bruce then, or did I say... Richard the Lionheart. Yeah, that might be... A, yeah, Robert uh, the Bruce, but there's a... So Robert the Bruce um, was uh, imprisoned, wasn't he? And saw, mm. was about to give up and saw the spider trying to construct the web. And I think six times something came along and blew the web away. And Just the and idea then, of perseverance, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it's the little things, isn't it, that you're telling us that we see in the, the burning of the cakes and the, the making of the web that we see... Uh, people seek that extra motivation to continue. Oh, the, the perseverance, yeah. And, and, and Alfred found a way to do that because he, he reached out and he got on side some key people, even from his base in the marshes, and gathered people to his side. And then when he worked out the time was right, he emerged from the marshes and had an army behind him, confronted the Vikings at this great battle of Eddington and defeated them. And one of the... the most important battles of that period of time. And ever after that, the Vikings uh, were never really a threat. And, and here's another interesting point too. You would have thought after he defeated the Vikings in this great battle, um, which indicated his perseverance and his planning and all of that, but you would have thought he might've been a bit ruthless, you know, mm. really exacted revenge upon them. What he did instead was quite interesting. The, the Vikings leader was a guy called Guthrum. He didn't exile him. He didn't um, kill him. He baptised him. 
he baptized him and brought him brought him um, into the Christian faith because yeah. his idea was if we can get these people to be Christians, we're more likely to be able to coexist with them. They're really, really interesting. So it's an appeasement that works, John. Um, well, that, that was, but but he he still set it up like he um, he made a deal with the Vikings that they could stay in certain parts of England, uh, but then later on there was further conflict. He took over London, um, so he basically then set the base for his son and his grandson to then establish England as the kingdom that we know it. And he That's really someone dies too. How soon after someone dies do they get the title? So how, how long before you get to be called the great? Oh, the great. Lifetime? I, I'm pretty sure he wasn't called the great in his lifetime. I think that's Certainly something... Certainly not by the bakers of the world. Yeah, that, that's something that happened quite quite long after. Mm. Yeah. But he was and known as... The great story, Frederick the Great, Alexander the Great. Well, Alexander the Great, yeah, good good point. I'm not sure when whether he was ever called great in his, life, his lifetime. But I think it wouldn't have been not too long after that. Fantastic. What what I really loved about your story, John, was um, the the fact that things can change on a dime, can't they? And and you said that mm. it would be a very different um, proposition if if one or two things different had have happened differently. Um, before I let you go, you, you said that this love of history came as a, a six or seven year old. Um, so what sparked that? Interesting. I. I know my parents provided me with um, a lot of sort of interesting uh, reference books, um, sort of like children's reference books. I had a reference book about dinosaurs that I read and I memorised and read up about dinosaurs. I read up about um, space travel. I read up about um, the American Civil War. Um, so it was a lot of different topics. And I've, I've still actually got those, those books and they're, they're way back from the mid-1960s. Um, so I think I think it was reading about that that established a love of learning. But I always had a fascination to know what things were like in the past. Because I think, you know, we, we've never been able to work out a way to time travel, even though, you know, I love Doctor Who. and uh, But it's, you know, not something we can do. But I think understanding history is the, the next best thing to time travel, to try to work out what these people were like, um, how we've come to be where we are now. I think that's really fascinating. And try to learn from the past. Yeah. And bef before I let you go, I have to ask the most obvious question. If you could time travel, where would it be? Ooh, when would it be? I'd, I'd be tempted to go back to about 1483, 1485, and just um, I'd like to warn King Richard III about, <laughs> about what was awaiting him. <laughs> try to save him from that awful fate. Would you rather go 100 years in the past or 100 years in the future? Ooh. Maybe 100 years in the past. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Um, the, the future's enticing as well. Yeah, the future's interesting. And the future's out there for us to shape, I think, too. Mm. Thanks, John. Plenty to think about there. Look, I am um, really inspired hearing you talk about history, and as I always am, it's it's great to see that passion come through. And uh, certainly, you're a, you're a great font of knowledge, and everyone who knows you really appreciates the fact that you can just uh, jump in and, and and tell us a little bit about where we've come from and perhaps where we're going. Thanks, John. It's so much to be inspired with Alfred the Great and and this. Uh, okay, good on your tops. Thanks, John. Okay. See ya.
Well, thank you for joining me on the first ABC Anything But Coronavirus podcast. It's been really great to have a couple of friends to come and join me and I thank John, Bernie and Lisa for sharing something of their lives and for having the opportunity to talk about things other than the pandemic and to not talk about work. I'd like to thank Tom Flatman, my engineer, who's done the mixing of this podcast. Thank you for listening and I'd like to encourage you to contact me if you'd be willing to join in and have a chat about anything but coronavirus. Thank you, everyone.